Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I'm sitting here with Turney Duff, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Buy Side, a Wall Street trader's tale of spectacular excess. Turney, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Tony, you so I, much. I read your story, and A, you were at the center of the entire hedge fund universe. You made a ton of money. You lost a ton of money. I want you, though, to, without me describing it, define spectacular excess. <laughs> and then we'll just dive. You know, normally, by the way, I have, like, a list of questions. Like, I prepare for, like, weeks, all these questions. With you, I didn't kind of come up with questions in advance because you, the story just tells itself. But then I'll ask you questions sure. during so what is spectacular excess? <laughs> well, first, just going off of, of of that title, halfway through the writing process, I called my editor at Random House and I said, I'm like, Rick, I, w- I, w- I want to change the title of, of the book. He's like, why? What? And as I was writing it, I realized I'm like, you've got a, a guy with a waspy name, you know, who grew up in a small town in Maine who made millions of dollars in Wall Street and he's a drug addict. So I was like, let's just call it Boo Hoo. Like... <laughs> That's what I thought, you know, the title the title should be. Um, well, well, that, that's interesting because so you felt like just saying like like one year you have even a chapter. The whole chapter is just your check. One point yeah. eight million dollars that you made that year. What? what uh, 2003 was the year. The end of three. Yeah. yeah. So so just saying that. OK, it's almost like we can't cry for you or maybe you felt that. Yeah. But I didn't get that impression because a Wall Street has this way of like sucking people in so they spend what they make and B you really had like this intense tragedy that anyone could relate to but we'll we'll get into that sure. you know but i but but did you feel like guilty sort of saying like oh i made these millions of dollars and i think when when before by the way you lost it so yeah oh, i'm i'm at zero <laughs> um before i started writing it i i kind of felt like that i was like i'm starting with three strikes like who's going to care and then about a week before the book was published i had this overwhelming just Fear. I was driving home on the Long, Long Island Expressway, and I'm like, what did I do? Like, did I really just put myself out there like that? But um, what, I, what I chose to do, I said, look, chances are people aren't going to like me after I tell the story. So at no point am I ever, ever, ever going to try to get the reader to like me. I'm, I'm not going to try to get you to hate me, but, but I'm, there's, there's going to be nothing in there 
that is like, you know, got lipstick on it and, and, you know, this is a, a moment where you're like, you know what, Turney's not such a bad guy. And I figured, you know what, the truth will, will ultimately prevail and, and don't, don't try to get the reader to like you. Well, so, so along those lines, then I'll get back to the spectacular excess in a, uh, in a moment. Did you get mail afterwards from people who hated you or liked you or what was the res- reader response that you saw? Shockingly, the overwhelming response was positive. Um, and, and one of the biggest lessons I learned from this whole ordeal is for 40 plus years of my life, I've always done things based on how many friends am I going to gain, how many friends am I going to lose. And, and it's a calculated decision. And for the first time ever, I said, you know what, I'm just going to do this and, 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 and I'm going to let it play out the way, the way it's supposed to. And, and shockingly, more people leaned towards liking me than, than didn't. And what I learned was I would rather have you not like me versus you like me because I only show you part of myself or my good self. It reminds me of how so many people say, and I'm forgetting now the exact quote and writer, but basically the idea that writing is a form of psychic surgery where you kind of dive deep into yourself regardless of the audience. And when you take that viewpoint, you sort of cure something in yourself. So, So you maybe you're biggest infliction and you even see this or affliction then you even see this in the book is you're always thinking of how do I get people to like me as opposed to not like me and do you think the process of writing this book and putting it out there somewhat cured that insecurity in you it definitely helped you know it's 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 a daily thing for me Mm -hmm. you know you know what I mean like it doesn't just cure itself and and I'm you know off you know to do my thing um Awareness is is huge in in my life, and so I'm much more aware that is one of my character defects. I want people to like me, um, and and now that I'm aware of that, I'm able to sort of navigate my own, you know, sort of path where maybe not so much importance is put on whether you like me or not. Because you know what, when I walk out of here, I have no idea. You might be like, Turney was the worst guest ever, so boring and so full of himself. Um, I don't think so, but go ahead. It's possible, <laughs> right? But but I'm I'm not going to know. And if I sit here and try to give you some great interview so James likes me, it's not going to be as good of an interview as if I'm just honest and, and tell you how I feel and, and who I am. And And at the end of the day, hopefully you like me. If you don't, I'm sorry, you know? Well, so so on that note, then, what is excess and define it in terms of your stories that happened to you? Sure. So, so you 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 made that one point eight million. You made uh, you know good checks every year during this period, uh, and you were living large, but in such an extreme way that it essentially kind of just you know greatly affected to the negative what what happened right. to you. So what was what was going on? So I mean, th- this started you know probably at birth. Um, I was always trying to outdo myself. So if my if my sixth birthday, you know, I had ten kids there. Well, I wanted twelve kids in 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 a goat, you know, for for the seventh birthday. Um, so I was probably my my biggest sort of own rival, and I constantly was trying to outdo the night before, or you know, um, any any accomplishment that that I received or or, or got. 
felt great, but it, it was an instant, you know, like it was just a, a fleeting moment. And, and so I've been sober for six plus years now. Sober. And, yeah. Sober mm -hmm. drugs, alcohol, nothing. Um, but very often you talk about people who, who struggle with addiction and, and, and there's this feeling that, that people get, and I'm sure everyone gets this, but that moment when you feel like I have arrived. Okay. Um, I was addicted to that feeling, you know, like something would happen, let's say in a New York City nightlife scene where, you know, I was, I was recognized or I was treated a certain way and, and I felt like I had arrived. That was only good for that night. And, and, and I wanted to arrive the next night. And so the excess was really, it was a combination of, you know, obviously money and, and, and the way that I spent money and women and, and power and just, just, I, I have the disease of more. I, I want more. James, if we filled this, the studio right now with cocaine, right? And I now walked, we're talking. Yes. And, we, and I walked in here in, in 2003, four, five, six, seven, whatever. And this entire room was filled with cocaine. I'd look at it and I'd be like, it's not enough. You know, it's not enough. Wait, I don't understand. So you would be able to consume that amount or you would give it out? Uh, or... Everything. But I'm just saying nothing was enough. <laughs> So you you could you could invite me over to your apartment and 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 show me you know twenty five thousand dollars worth of blow and and it would look glorious and I'd be like this is amazing, but there'd be a small little voice in my head and be like it's not enough, it's, it's not quite enough. Well, during this time, did you ever feel like okay, like when you made that first seven figure bonus or right. whatever, did you ever feel like okay, this was this is enough or no, for even for it, a moment? What's, what's interesting about that is, so uh, let's backtrack to 1994. I met Morgan Stanley. I'm in private wealth um, client services, and um, I'm living on 85th and Columbus. I'm the third guy in a two-bedroom apartment. I'm sleep sleeping on a couch. Um, some Thursdays, I'm borrowing money for a subway token just just to get to work. And, and, and I said to my friends, I'm like, you know, if I could just make $50,000 a year, all of my problems would be solved. All of them. And fast forward, you know, eight years later, I make $2 million. And in my head, I'm saying, if I could just make $3 million a year, all of my problems would be solved. You know, I had a similar experience around 2000 where it was like the internet bubble and I had sold a company and I had made a good amount of money, but I had the same problem. I figured this is not, even though it was enough to live the rest of my life, I figured I had this crazy, insane thought. If I can't make a hundred million, I'm poor. Right. And, and so this is where the boo-hoo kind of comes in. Like no right. one's gonna, no one's gonna forgive you this feeling. But at the same time, it was the, that feeling was the sole reason I lost every dime I had. Because in order to achieve that amount, in order to always achieve more, you have to risk, and you have to risk what you have, whether it's some aspect of your personality or money or whatever or your relationships. And so those risks, I wasn't prepared to take, even though I thought I was, and I lost everything. So I imagine. When you're constantly seeking more, as opposed to focusing on doing what you love or whatever, you're, the risks are right. too great. Well, a hundred percent. And you know, people used to, you know, whether they would they would look at me as a as an employee or friends or you know, because I, I I used to have numerous things going on, and and people would be like, "Wow, attorney's so driven," you know, because I'd, I'd be the first guy in the office, no matter how hungover I was. Um, 
you know, and I was constantly working, whether I was working the room or, you know, working the club or I was constantly working and people would say, wow, Turney is so driven. Now that I can reflect back, I wasn't driven. It was discontent. I, I, I needed more. And, and, and what, I, what do you think you were self-medicating against with, with that feeling? Like what, where did the insecurity come from? I'm sure there's, you know, uh, uh, plenty of stuff in, 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 in my childhood, um, you know, I've always kind of had this nobody loves me syndrome. Um, and, you know, I, maybe it's maybe it's my my birth sign. You know, I've got a lot of Jupiter in my chart. But um, I, I, I always I had this fear of, of ordinary fear of being normal. If let's say you and I went skiing and this makes no sense. Right. But <laughs> me I, going skiing makes no sense to begin with. <laughs> so you and I are skiing. Right. <laughs> and for some reason, I would rather either be the worst skier or the best gear. I don't want to be, you know, the middle. The, you know what I mean? Like, because you're talking about the worst gear and you're talking about the best gear, but you're not. You're not talking about you know, two, three, four, five. Um, so, so there was always this feeling of, and 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 it, it, a lot of it's based on insecurity and and just this, you know, I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be adored. I wanted. I wanted people to like me you know it, it, it all goes back to that but um so, i'm sorry no no, no that's okay because uh because i want to i want to reel it back just to kind of say where you were so you were at um the the galleon hedge fund yep. which is um i never know how to say his last name raj rajaratnam yeah and he was the the big insider trading scandal like he kind of started the whole yes. kind of like let's go for all the hedge fund guys and insider he was the huge inside trader. Yes. Um, then you worked at Argus, which is a healthcare hedge fund, and this yep. is where you made your first million, yep. uh, or at least in a year. Yep. Um, then you worked at Ber Berkowitz. In between was, that, there was a rehab, but yeah, yes. Rehab, then <laughs> Kramer, then not Kramer Berkowitz, but it, became, it used to be Jim Kramer's hedge fund, yep. but then um, Jeff Berkowitz bought it, and you worked at Berkowitz. Yep. So I feel like you were sort of at the, hedge, at the center of the entire hedge fund world, and you were a trader for them. So you weren't an analyst. You weren't picking the stocks necessarily. No. All of there was overlap. Lap, you were trading and from reading and then I want to get to the kind of what happened to you in a second but I'm also fascinated by the trading aspect um, because it seemed to me from your descriptions that a lot of the returns of that, that your hedge funds were generating were based on kind of tricks and little schemes almost <laughs> that you were doing as a trader right. uh, and while I don't want to focus too much on that it seemed like in some cases, maybe the bulk of the returns were coming from like ways you were kind of manipulating the system a little bit in your trading, and in part because of the size you were trading. So, what were some of the the tricks there? Um, I you were trading like um, like tens of millions of dollars a day. I mean, are you are you talking more like tricks in the market, like whether it be insider trading or just kind of no, no tricks in the market that were not not the illegal, although it was all kind of gray area. So right. I mean, th this isn't really a trick, but like, you know, one thing that I did that I don't think most traders did, I, I was very aware of everyone in the office and I was uh, aware of their tendencies. And, and so I would have a biotech analyst who was phenomenal, right? She was, she was great. She had good information. She knew what she was talking about. Um, and when she would run up to my desk and panic and say, hey, Tony, Biogen's down another $2, like we, we got to sell. I would say, well, has anything changed? And she'd be like, no, but, you know, it's, it keeps going down. It's, we got to sell. And so as soon as she would walk away, I would buy more <laughs> because I knew her tolerance for pain was, um, you know, a buy signal. And so I start, rather than, like, sitting there doing fundamental research or, you know, reading reports or, or, or you know, doing a doctor call or whatever, I was kind of just 
being aware of everyone around me. And, it's almost and, like you were trading the minds of the people yeah, uh, uh, sitting around yeah, you. I was, I was, mm-hmm. because people make the same mistakes over and over again. We, we had a guy at Argus who, you know, in my mind was, was absolute gold. He was, he was awesome. And one day my PM comes to me and he's like, you know, we, we got to fire him. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm like, this guy is 100% wrong. He's always wrong. I mean, if you're 100%, I don't care which way, wrong or right, that's gold, right? So, yeah. so I would bet against him every time he he had an idea or wanted to add or wanted to, you know, subtract. Did and, he know you were betting against him? Like, could he tell from the... I mean, sometimes. I mean, the, He must have known as all his yeah, picks were wrong. The positions don't lie, but, you know, I was making money. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And how much did your, did your bosses know you were doing that so you would get cr- the credit for these kind of enhanced returns on the trading? Y- yes. For, for a number of years, I was kind of, um, I don't know, how do you say, I guess sort of the, the, the golden boy in some ways. Um, and then, you know, obviously when, when the drugs and alcohol started to take over, I, I sort of lost that title. But um, Why? Because the drugs and alcohol were, uh, obviously they were infecting your night, but were they infecting the day enough that uh, your, your trading was off and you could no longer get those yeah, enhanced returns? I was returns? making dumb mistakes and I wasn't, I wasn't working as hard. I was calling in sick. And I mean, it was, it was just, it was a nightmare. But um, like you were talking about like a, uh, another uh, trick. So... Recently in the news, there's been some talk of spoofing. Are you, are you, it's basically putting fake orders into the market. I used to do that shit all the time. Am am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) This is a a pro swearing podcast. Excellent. I mean, I'm not a big swearer, but occasionally it slips out. Um, You know, the specialists on the floor used to be like, you know, licensed crooks, right? And, and, and and I hated trading with a specialist. Um, and and sometimes I would get a phone call from like the guy at Prudential who said, "Hey, Turney, I'm long hundred thousand shares of X Y Z. The specialist knows it, and he's he's basically putting the metal down and 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 squeezing me, and he's going to force me out of my position." I was like, "All right, watch this." And so I go and I put on my dot machine, which just goes directly to to the floor, in about a quarter, you know, maybe twenty five cents below the market. I put in an order to buy five hundred thousand shares. Just to spook the hell out of him. And so the specialist freaks out because now he thinks there's this monster buy order. Stock rips up. My guy Prudential can sell his shares. And then all of a sudden I cancel my order. But I was just like... You, know, you did that in a... I noticed one trade you did. You did that in a particularly evil way in one situation where it was... The, <laughs> and then, and there, there's a lot of like illegal things happening in this trade. None that you did, although maybe the spoofing oh, is a sure, great area. I'm sure I was definitely doing illegal but, things. But the the one, the one the, the broker, the woman that you were using as a broker, mm-hmm. and the marking up at the end of the yep. year, the yep. trades. But describe that trade, because it's there was at least two things that were totally illegal sure. in there, and it was fascinating how hedge funds kind of scam their customers right. a little bit. I'll try to make it as simple as possible, but so um, the only time a hedge fund makes profit... Um, is on a realized profit or realized loss. Like that's that's how it is determined how they get paid at the end of the year. And the only day of the year where that is not the case is on December 31st or the last day of trading. And they use the market price of that position. And so on the last day of the year, it was very common for me to... And many hedge funds. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, maybe I was leading the way, but you know, there was plenty of people doing the same thing. Um, and so, um, if I could get one of our positions up, you know, let's say a few dollars 
at the end of the year, they're going to use that price to determine our profits. And so let's say, for instance, we had a stock, Cyberonics, CYBX, um, very illiquid, maybe trades 100,000 shares a day, and we have 5 million shares, right? So at 345 on the last day of the year, I run out and I just I buy as many shares as I can and I just try to rip that stock. Right. So whether or not it was a good investment at that point, like it, oh, it, I didn't it, care. I, yeah, it could go down on January first. But if you let's say you have five million shares and you you buy a stock that trades a hundred thousand shares a day and you buy three hundred thousand shares just in the last fifteen minutes, it's going to go up five bucks maybe. Yep. So you have twenty five million in gains from just those fifteen yes. minutes, even though it's not realized and you'll never be able to get out. You could make the hedge fund, which takes twenty percent of the profits, is going to make five million dollars because of those fifteen minutes. Exactly, just on paper gains. Yes, yeah, and so that was that was very common, and it got harder to do as the years went on because either people kind of clued in or, or or what. But so on this one particular year, um. I, I set up to do this, and and I, and I called this woman, and and I said, look, you know, buy these five stocks and short these five, and you know, do as much as you can to, you know, rip them, like just rip the stocks in the direction I want them to go. And I watched the stocks about ten minutes before I told her to 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 get to work, and uh, they started to move. And so that so so now we're on the second illegal activity. So the first one is is ripping the stocks for artificial right. gains, so the hedge fund managers can basically take money from their investors. Right. That's illegal. Second thing is um, what she did. She leaked my orders to someone else, which it, is illegal. Front running right, is illegal. Right. Yeah. Right. And her client was benefiting, and so the stocks didn't go as high or as low as I wanted to on that year because they were met with some demand at the very end of the day, because whoever was the front runner was selling them back to me. Does, right. does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And so I took note. I was like, okay. I'm like, she screwed me. And I kind of had this attitude, you know, it was like, you know, if you're going to fuck me, I'm going to fuck you harder. And I didn't say anything. I, I let a year go by. And the following year, I, I called the same woman at 3.30 p.m. And I said, hey, um. Um, I've got I've got a bunch of these orders that you know you, you know what I want to do you know wink wink nod nod and she's like yeah definitely great okay gave her the list of you know million share orders gave her about ten stocks all all somewhere between five hundred thousand and a million shares that I was gonna either rip up all, or rip all down. on like small pretty yeah, much very illiquid stocks, names so that any movement and any big buy at all particularly on like New Year's Eve day Basically, is gonna right. the, the, move the, the, the stock up the two boxes that needed to be checked were. Were they a, a significant position that we had on our books? Because that's the only reason I would want to move right. those stocks. And were they illiquid? Mm -hmm. Could could I move them? Because I couldn't move Microsoft if I wanted. Like right. you know, um, and so you know, here we are a year later, and I give her these orders, and 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 I say, you know, specifically, I'm like, do not start these till three fifty. Do not start these till three fifty. Um, and you know, I waited till three forty nine. And then I called, and, I, and, and all the stocks started to move at like 3.40, right? Mm -hmm. And so I called the woman, and I was like, oh, um, actually, I need to cancel all those orders. Um, yeah, we're, we're not going to do it this year. And she was like, oh. Like I could hear her choking on a pen. Because she had already told everybody she, else, she and they were like, right, they were waiting right. for you to move in so they can get out. Yes. You know? And so then um, once I hung up with her, and you know, she she probably thought she was going to be fired or her clients were going to hate her. I called another guy 
and did the opposite of what I told her. So not only was I moving the stocks where I wanted them to go, I had these other people. You were just crushing. Who were panicking because they had five minutes of the rest of the year, and now they're going to be stuck with like a big loss. So, 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 and so, so essentially, I'm wondering if there's a third illegal thing in there, any kind of like manipulating of the knowledge you had about how she was playing you, but that's probably fair game. Yeah. Yeah. So, I uh, think so. And did, again, were your bosses aware? Like, you had a huge game that year at the last 15 minutes of the year, also. Like, were your bosses aware of, you kind of, you know, just to give you credit, like, were they aware of the money you were making them? Yes. I mean, it, it, you know, did, did they come over and put a gold star on my desk? No, but they were fully aware of, I mean, how can you not be? Right. Because they had this huge game that day. Right. Probably outsized compared to other days. Right. So, 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 okay. So when did it start to kind of verge into, uh, um, and you described many tricks in the trading that you were doing that I thought were very interesting and kind of used to enhance hedge fund returns game, mostly legal tricks, but, uh, (laughs) uh, then, well, well, the first question is how much of kind of hedge fund activity, even now, would you view as gray area to illegal? Because I even see in my own circle stuff that I would question like, oh, this doesn't seem quite correct. Right. Um, you know, yeah, the, it, it's tough because I think the business has gotten a lot cleaner mm-hmm. since, you know, let's say since Raj. Um, and, you know, the more and more we would see perp walks or read bad headlines, um, there became a lot more fear. Um, but what's interesting now is it seems like they're narrowing the definition of insider trading, which I think is a mistake. Um, because if, 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 if I know the rules, then I know how to cheat, right? Or I, I, I know how to sort of circumvent or loophole. Um, and so as they narrow the definition of insider trading, I think it, it's potential for it to get worse. Um, but over the last, let's say, five to six, seven years, it's been so ambiguous. And, and, and there's been fear of, well, you know, well, we can't do that because, well, what if that's, you know, I don't want to go to jail. Um, so it's gotten- but, but there are even, like, websites, though, and there were more, admittedly, earlier, but there are even websites that say, you know, like, whispers of, of rumors, like, oh, we hear such and such company is going to blow out earnings. Well, how did they hear? They must, either people are talking or, if they're accurate, you know, and some of these websites are fairly accurate. Right, or, you but know. I, I believe the definition is you need to, there's, there's two things. You need to know that the, the, the information is actually, you know, insider Mm -hmm. and the tippy is supposed to be you know if if he's rewarded you know for for his information it's it's hard to check those two boxes right because that's pretty extreme so let's say you just happen to like um i don't know peek over the cfo of a company in the subway or whatever and he's looking at his numbers and you're and you know this is good is that insider trading then because you didn't pay the cfo right i i i I think under the definition it it isn't Mm -hmm. which is it's it's a little crazy but Mm -hmm. like Back in the day, you know, I knew what was going to be on the cover of Barron's every Thursday. I knew. You know what I mean? And 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 there was usually a trade there, right? Um, I would have a guy, you know, trading at... How uh, would you know? Because because I had a guy who who had a friend who, who worked at Barron's, and we would we would be told what was on the cover. Hmm. You know? And, and, and would that guy get paid? The Barons guy? Uh, not through me, mm-hmm. you know? Right, so then it was just, oh, this is just a rumor oh, basically circulating yes, around. Yes, but I, I, I knew inherently that, like, this isn't right. Right. But it, that's how the game was played. 
I would also have, a, you know, I would have a guy at a program desk, right? And I'd get a phone call and be like, Tony, we're putting a billion dollars, you know, into the market at three o'clock. Click. So I, I, I know how to, you know, sort of set my chess pieces up to, uh, right. you know, if, 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 if I'm buying stocks and I'm going to go early, if I'm going to sell, I'm going to wait till, you know, till three 30. Like, so I don't know. Is that a direct, yeah, that's information. Yeah. That's insider trading, you know? So just theoretically, do you think, um, better to have like, like information like that more accurately reflect, like it, having that information in the market, as opposed to just between friends talking on the phone like when once you started buying um before three o'clock in that last situation you're actually reflecting you're, you're actually putting more information into the market which is better maybe for the small investor better for them to know oh something's going on so i'm gonna buy too right. rather than suddenly at three o'clock this massive billion dollars comes in so it seems like insider trading i'm, I'm just playing the devil's advocate yeah. I, don't, I don't have like an uh, opinion on it one way or the other but it seems like that creates greater efficiency in the market i i, I would agree and and the other thing that i would say is and, and i get it like some people want to say it's a victimless crime which which isn't completely accurate but but let's say I know a company's being, you know, taken out, right? And you don't. And you already have your sell order out there in the market. James wants to sell 100,000 shares at $50. I scoop it up, right? So, so I, I, I am the beneficiary of, of the inside information. But guess what? You already had that. So I didn't put a gun to your head. Right. You were selling that stock whether... I was buying it or not. Well, let's take the Raj example that really did him in, which, if I remember correctly, it was a, the buyout of Hilton. So, uh, and that might have just been one of many, but that was the, that's the trade I remember that, that he did. That well, was uh, don't forget the Gupta trade with Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, putting in five billion. Yeah, that's he a big got one. that call at three fifty-five. Yeah. So, right. so, but let, let's say a stock's going to go from one forty-five to to one fifty in one sharp jump because he knows something. Um, as opposed to if lots of people are trading on insider information because it's legal, say it'll start to go out more smoothly. So maybe the guy who has the sell order in it, you know, in the middle there, he's like, "Oh, what's going on here?" As opposed to one sharp jump, sharp jump where he's taken out, it's going up smoothly. He has more options to pull out his sell order. Right. So maybe if it's totally efficient and the inside information, like now lawyers and investors and accountants and everybody who knows the information starts trading on it, that might reflect a more you know, accurately moving market. So as the as the stock gets closer and closer to being acquired, it's the stock is more correctly reflecting right. the odds that this is going to get acquired yeah. at a certain price. No, uh, you're 100 percent right. I mean, I don't know the solution. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it would be hard for me to say yes. Insider trading should be legal because obviously there 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 would be other issues. Other, you know, yes, the market might be more efficient, but um, you know, you you don't want people on street corners handing envelopes of bags of money and you right. know and side deals and but there wouldn't it would just like if drugs were legal suddenly the price of drugs would like illegal drugs would go down because it would be again a more efficient market so information itself is a market and if everybody was acting on information then information would get cheaper it wouldn't be like bags of money it would be like oh you my cousin's a lawyer on this deal he says it's going to happen go trade on it so suddenly right. information would go down to free Right. No, you're right. You're right. I'm just pretending. Like, I don't yeah, really yeah, know. Yeah. but <laughs> Although I do think drugs should be legal. <laughs> I, I totally do as well. So, because look at, uh, um, you know, again, just how much crime is uh, is I, ancillary 100%. to the drug trade, you know, but like, you know, murder, muggings, you know, all sorts of crimes because drug prices are inflated, because it's, it's, it's 
done and all these, you know, like basically, you know, criminals, it becomes part of their business right. to, to trade drugs well, as opposed to legal institutions. Right. And, and that's kind of my theory also, because like, I believe I'm like, it's time to make new mistakes. We've, we've been making the I like same. That quote. Thank you. We've been making the same mistakes for the last 30 years. Let's make some new ones. You right. know what I mean? I don't know what's going to happen if we legalize drugs. But but at least let's say, let's say heroin's legal, right? You know that's that's one of the harsher drugs out there. Um, if it's legal, you can at least now have a dialogue with the person who's standing in line. You and I aren't going to stand in that line, right? You know, I'm sober, and I'm assuming you don't do heroin. Um, so although just, I have heard it's a pretty impressive drug, I, I don't <laughs> do it. <laughs> um, just because it's legal doesn't mean I'm going to start doing heroin, right? But at least now you can have a dialogue with the people who are standing in that line. Whereas now there's there's no dialogue. So 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 let's get into that. So you were having these great years as a trader. You were you were achieving some level of satisfaction with with yourself and your work. But you you but now we get into what you were saying earlier. This feeling of more, and you couldn't get it enough from work. So drugs became a bigger and bigger part of your life. Like what's I mean, I, you mentioned cocaine. What were just all the drugs you were taking? What's the full list? <laughs> I, I mean, there's, there's, there was a night I was out, and these guys were doing something under the table, and the first and, place to look for illegal drugs. Right. There, like there was some exchange going on, right? And I could sniff that out a mile away. And so they're, they were doing something illegal, and I remember vividly saying, "I want one," and they're like, "Oh, okay," and they hand me a pill, and I take it. And then I'm like, what is it? And now that I can reflect back, I'm like, who does that? Like, right. who? I yes, I want. I that's illegal. That's a drug. Whatever. I want it. And then you ask after you take it. Like, so, um, I was I wasn't opposed to to anything. Cocaine was clearly my my go to and my favorite. But you know, whether it was ecstasy and you know smoking weed and obviously alcohol. Um, Vicodin, you know, Percocet, you know, what, whatever I can get my hands on. So, so with cocaine, you said that is your favorite. What I I have to be honest, I've never tried cocaine, and I'm just I'm just totally stupid. So, what's the what's the benefit? Like, what did you feel okay. on cocaine? So, I'll just back up a little bit. The first time it was offered, I was kind of a late bloomer with cocaine. Um, it didn't didn't really enter into my life until like right around age thirty or so. Um, but the first time it was offered, the the first, and I talked a little bit about this in the book, the first thought I had was Len Bias, you know, because I'm a kid of the 80s, 1986 or 85, whatever it was, you know, the night before he was drafted, the day after he was drafted, he tried cocaine once and died. So in my head, it was for the last 15 years, you do cocaine, you die. And so I, I didn't do it the first time it was offered. Fast forward six months later. Um, my bank account had changed. The people that I was running around with had changed. I was kind of living this more sort of luxurious, opulent New York City life, and 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 it just didn't didn't seem so menacing. And so I did cocaine for the first time, and I and it it was so good that from my way from the bathroom back up to the rooftop, I was at the Thompson Hotel. I had this moment where I said, "This is going to be a problem. Like, it's too good." I. I'll worry about that later, but this is going to be a problem. And and the best way I can describe it is I felt like I'd been hibernating for the last 20 years and I was finally awake and every sense was heightened. Um, I just, I, I felt things, I smelled things, I I could see the entire room and, and, 
and and that first cocaine high just it it made me feel invincible and and for someone who has got so much shit going on inside of them whether he's insecure or doesn't think people loves him you know it just it 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 filled every single hole within my soul so like I don't know, I'm just making something up, but if you could take like one of those sort of um, ultra ray images of, of my soul, like there would be all of these empty pockets, right? But when I did cocaine, it was entirely filled. And, and so and so so just on the surface, like let's say that was like a pharmaceutical medicine, that sounds like, oh my god, that sounds great. So where is the problem? <laughs> and I'm just again being totally naive. Of course, of yeah. course. Um it 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 felt so good. I wanted it again. Well, because how long does the high last? Um, you know, early on it, it it lasts longer, and and it kind of gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, you know, in my early days, three or four of us guys could 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 go out with one hundred dollar bag, and and it would sort of supplement the drinking, and and I could do a few bumps in the bathroom and and be good for a few hours, and um. Slowly, it got to the point where we all needed our own $100 bag. And then it got to the point where we were meeting the dealer. We weren't even going out. and We were just doing our bags. And then it got to the point where we were just all meeting our dealers individually and, and staying home and, and, and just doing doing blow. Um, and so that would be – so the focus became not having a fun time with your friends but just – Getting the experience of filling these holes in the soul. Yeah, 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 and 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 you had to do it like all day because then I imagine the high would go down to like a half hour. It, it, it yeah, it got the tolerance pretty, would get bigger and it, bigger. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it got to the point where it's pretty brutal. Like, um, there there were a number of years where I was sleeping, you know, probably four nights a week, um, and that's not good sleep. But there were three three days a week where I was not going to bed, um, but. Uh, another interesting thing about cocaine. So the the receptor in the brain where where I guess you get the sort of cocaine high is literally next door to the same sort of um, receptor for for sex. And for me, it was this giant cocktail of you know cocaine, alcohol, sex, pornography, what whatever it is. And and so you know near the end, if if I had an urge for for sex. That meant I had an urge for cocaine, and and getting sober was difficult because um, I had to unwind all of these, you know, sort of. Is it possible to unwind it? Like when the brain gets so messed up like that? Yeah, but it took it took some time and some rewiring, and um, you know, it it it, it was not well, easy. Is there a uh, like what about coming down off of? Uh, like a high like that, does it go, do you go too far in the other direction? Like, do the holes get bigger? Yes, 100%. And 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 there is so much guilt and shame that you carry um, for whether you, you lied to your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or, or maybe you called an escort or, you know, maybe you stole money from someone. Whatever you did, you know, to get that high um, and, and, and while you were high, when you come down you're you're carrying all of all of the shit that you were carrying before so like you know we, we talk about it sometimes like with in sobriety groups or whatnot but it's like if whatever you're dealing with you're not going to improve it with you know a drink or a drug yes it temporarily you know sort of relieves it um 
But when you come down, it's just as bad, if not worse. Um, so for me, it became this vicious cycle. Um, and, you know, during this time, you also got you got married. You had a child. We never officially married. Okay, so you had a long-term relationship that yep. you had a... We were partners. Right, and Jen in the book. Yeah. I don't know if that's her real name, but I yep, guess it, it is. And Lola's your daughter. Yep. So uh, you had a kid during this time. Yeah. And they, for a while, were, or at least Jen was unaware that you yep. were... Um, uh, taking drugs like I, in the book you mentioned you would go to hotel rooms just yeah. and rent hotel rooms why would you go to a hotel room as opposed to like a club or whatever um because uh, th- there's huge amounts of paranoia um i didn't want to cheat on jen but i wanted to watch pornography so a hotel room was great mm-hmm. um and 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 i could be alone and you know w- when i would do cocaine the first i'll tell you the the, the best high was that phone call i would make to to my girlfriend, this is when she was out on Long Island, but when I was in the city, it was a little different. But when when I was able to make a phone call and say, I'm staying in the city, I'm I'm not I'm not coming home tonight, but I'll you know I'll I'll be home tomorrow, whatever. And and I'm looking at a mound of cocaine and and I've got the remote control and I'm about to order 24 hours of porn. Um, hanging up the phone was this euphoric feeling of like I'm gonna get away with it. And the first line, first cigarette, first drink, phenomenal. Phenomenal 15 minutes. And then the next... 15 minutes. Yeah. The next 12 hours were absolute hell. What What was the hellish part? Like the coming down or the constantly refilling or not sleeping? Or... All of it. But like, it, it, like, this is no exaggeration. I would be in a hotel room and and you see it like in movies and TV all the time. But like, no lie. I would check the peephole hundreds, hundreds of times because I would think that someone was out in the hallway. About to um, bust in. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, as as many coke addicts can can probably attest to, you're walking down Fifth Avenue and you got a $100 bag in your pocket. You're thinking FBI. You're thinking DEA. You're thinking NYPD. Like, you're thinking that New York City law enforcement is focused on your $100 bag, which is ludicrous, right? But that's where your brain is going. And... And at least for me, and um, I don't want to get too off track, but for my uh, and and I actually this is on track, by the way. But, okay. but go ahead. Well, I didn't I didn't talk about this in the book because I didn't want to scare people. Um, but a huge element of of my addiction and my own sort of destruction um, was I used to see shit like and hear things and. And I would sit in my bedroom for, you know, six hours watching a tiny black dot slowly move under the door or like, you know, a shadow. And and so the hallucinations and the paranoia were 100% real for me. And 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 I talk a little bit about it in terms of the book with I, I fully believed that I was being followed for a number of years. Well, l- let me ask you, because you, 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 you mentioned this in the book, and I almost didn't know if it was unresolved or paranoia or what. But, like, for instance, you talk about a white-haired guy who you saw yep. several times who was who you felt was following you. Was that person really following you? Like, were you ever... like? I, and I couldn't tell. Was the FBI or SEC after you for stock stuff or drug stuff? Like, was it real? I, did, I didn't... Um, you you didn't come not in a bad way, but you didn't go full circle on that for right. some reason. So I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think partly because I I still don't know, right? The people that I saw on the street, like that gentleman or or, or other people, 
100% real. Like I didn't, I wasn't like imagining like purple elephants floating in, you know, in, in well, some days I was, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story. Um, but, but it was real, you know? Do I know that they were following me for whether it was some of the shenanigans I was pulling on, you know, the last day of the year or insider trading? And I have a connection to a guy, David Slane, who was considered a dream informant and helped bring down 37 people. Um, he was my first boss at Galleon. And who knows what was what was going on with with so him. once once you heard that David was an informant, did you like freak out? Like, am I next on the list? And they're just crossing the names off one at a time. I I knew that like my name is clearly had been I don't know about highlighted, but probably circled and maybe starred. Have you ever uh, done a Freedom of Information Act thing where you figure get their files on you? No, should I? Yeah, maybe just to see <laughs> for book two. Right, right. All my friends, and this isn't even funny because sobriety is a serious thing. But I've got a group of these guy friends who, great friends, um, they, they, they don't do drugs, but they, they still drink. But they always joke around. They're like, dude, you got to relapse. Like, the buy side too. And I'm like, it's not funny. But, so, sorry. No, um, no, but you know, as a writer, do you ever think like, oh my gosh, that was my story. And now what am I going to do for a story? Like, I don't have content. Like, content was making millions and snorting as much many yep. drugs as possible and ruining my relationship with girlfriend and child all at the same time. Yeah. So that's content for a book. And do you ever get a little bit anxious? You know, this book's out. It's been out a while. Uh, do you ever get anxious? What am I going to do next for content? Um, I, 100%. And I think that's sort of typical for, for a writer, whether you're as pro prolific as Stephen King or, you know, a one-hit wonder. I think... A lot of writers kind of feel that regardless of, of their own situation. Um, you know, I I was a ghostwriter on a book that that um, recently came out. It's doing well. I'm in negotiations to write a memoir for someone else, um, a significant person. Um, and, and if it goes through, it it, it would be it would be a great great coup for me. Um, so yes, am I concerned? Do I have another memoir within me? Maybe I don't know. A lot of people who've read The Buy Side want me to do, write another, you know, sort of Wall Street type book. It's just, it, it hasn't come out of me. Um, you know, my my literary agent from, from day one is like, I want you to be the next Michael Lewis. And I'm like, there's only one Michael Lewis, right? So like... Well, but the good point there is Michael Lewis got into, like, his obviously his first book, which propelled him to the stratosphere was Liar's right. Poker about Wall Street. But then he kind of did more, uh, the way he reinvented himself and his writing was he embedded himself in kind of all of these high stakes situations right. and then wrote about it. So for instance, Moneyball was a classic uh, where he wasn't obviously a baseball coach, but by getting into this whole kind of area of how baseball coaching was training, uh, changing using right. quantitative information, it became like this fascinating informative book, but also a story of like, you know, rags to riches in the baseball league right yeah and 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 you know that's it, it's his his work has been amazing and, and he is he's uncovered some great stories and 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 you know like a guy like ben mesrich right he's written a bunch of you know sort of stories that that 
uh, the the public cares about, and and he's able to kind of sort of emerge himself in into those worlds and and those stories. And whereas Ray, whereas I think like in the um, twenty one, I forget the original name of the the, the bringing book. down the house. Yeah, yeah. He um, he more embedded. He more became part of the story later on. I think he embedded himself more in the story, like the right. oligarchs one. Uh, right, right, right. right. Uh, and he he's been on my podcast too. Very good writer. Yeah. So uh, so have you ever thought about doing that? Like kind of finding a high stakes situation similar to what you've been in. And instead of experiencing it, more embedding yourself into it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if if I were to kind of find something that I'm comfortable with, you know, maybe it's more along the lines of Ben Mesrich, where it's you know rich rich boys behaving badly. Um, obviously, I know a lot about you know kind of getting sober, and and and, and I also know a lot about you know networking or being social, and and you know like we early we talked about earlier like. There was a time in a in you know a period where you know I wasn't the darling of New York City but there there was there wasn't anything I couldn't do in New York City. Right because it seemed like once you started uh as you mentioned living this opulent lifestyle it also became part of your business because that's how you would make connections that's how you would make the people in your network happy so that they would then return the favor perhaps in a work setting. So you went totally in the party scene where Perhaps you were kind of handing out the drugs or getting people yeah. into clubs or whatever, to, and then they would return the favor in various 100, ways. 100%. And, and, and can I tell you a short anecdote? Yeah. Um, and this this plays very big into sort of my addiction and who I am and who I was. Um, in the book, I talk about this birthday party that I kind of threw for myself. Um, had Naughty by Nature perform. Uh, a couple of how, how, how'd you get Naughty by Nature to perform, by the way? Like, Tretch is like my favorite rapper. He's, he's great. Um, right after September 11th, uh, I partnered with a friend of mine. His name is Jesse Isler. He's a, uh, a rapper in the 90s. His rap name was Jesse James. He had all these connections. He was managing Run DMC. I reached out to him. The first party, I got Rob Bass, PM Dawn, Dougie Fresh. Oh, my God. Um, and so I just started throwing these kind of old-school hip-hop parties. Um but so at my 34th birthday party, I had flown in all of these guys from Ohio that I went to college with. And I'm standing there. And at the end of the night, they're like, Turney, Turney, come here. So I walk over and, and they're like, they're like, who are you? And, and I'm like, what? They're like, seriously, they're like, who are you? And, and I, I didn't know what they were getting at. And they said, we've been standing at the bar all night and we've been meeting people. And they've been coming up to us saying, wait, oh, you know Turney? Can, can, can you introduce me to Turney? Or other people would be like, wait, can, can you just point him out? I want to see what Turney looks like. And and when they told me this, it was like it was like crack cocaine. It, it filled all of those those holes. And and I, and I felt like I had arrived. And, and, and it just as quickly evaporated. But, like, that's what I was, was trying to build. It was like... Turney, you you, you yeah. know what I mean, and 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 I'm embarrassed now, but um, you know I, I I wanted to be known, and I wanted to be known on the New York City sort of social nightlife scene, and so so reeling forward, obviously you you never got in trouble apparently for any kind of. You know, even though you were with all these funds that you know tons of people got in trouble, you sort of passed that by, but you didn't pass by the drug thing, and eventually it took its toll. I guess you left Wall Street, and we were talking earlier, um, you said you haven't been on Wall Street since 2009 in terms of working for a hedge fund. Right, right. And that also coincides with when you went totally sober. So, like, how linked um, is the sobriety, or how linked was the drug use to the hedge fund use? (laughs) Um, Well, I'd been asked before if, you know, if, if 
I thought Wall Street, you know, made me a drug addict, and and I a hundred percent say no. Um, did it enable me? Of course, you know. Um, money kept me kept me out, like you know the 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 lifestyle, and you know, big part of why I was successful on Wall Street was because of the entertaining, being able to get information and get guys to 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 help me, um, and that was by by being out. Um, so. You know, when when I stripped that all away, um, you know, I was kind of just left with buy and sell tickets and, you know, charts. And I was just like, this is beat, right? Um, I didn't, when I got back from rehab the first time, I didn't think there was a solution. I had a mortgage. I had a girlfriend. I had a daughter. Um, I had certain expenses. I needed to live a certain, certain way. And so when I got back from rehab the first time, there was no other option. I had to go back to Wall Street. Um, and then the second time around, I'd just been so beaten and so um, just kind of left for dead that I, I that I knew if I if I went back, it was gonna be just for the money. And I don't know where I got the courage, um, but I I said I was like it's it's not worth it. You know, there's I mean, and I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I should be dead, right? I'm. I mean, I'm on borrowed time, um, and you know, if if I picked up tomorrow, it's it, it would not be pretty. Um, so, you know, I I just decided that for the first time in a long time. And sorry for backtracking a little bit. No, that's okay. I became successful on the trading desk because I had great instincts and I used my gut. And along the way, I kind of lost that and. And the drugs and the alcohol and the booze and the hookers and all of that sort of clouded my judgment. And so now here I am, I don't know, 60 days sober, uh, have a, a job. Six years on, sober. Oh, no, 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 no. you're saying this back is, then. Yeah, end yeah. of 2009, uh, beginning of 2010. I got I have like 60 days sober and uh, I'm, I'm getting a job offer from a huge hedge fund called Pioneer Path. And, and I just knew it wasn't right, you know, and, and I probably could have made seven figures. And and I was like, you know what, I've I've relied on my gut and my instincts and that actually helped me, you know, sort of succeed. Um, and my gut and my instinct is saying, do not go back to Wall Street. Well, wow, that's hard to turn down, you know, particularly with a kid and everything. It's hard to turn down where you thought you could make seven figures a yeah. year for the next 20 years or whatever. But how does somebody build up? A gut like that, because I think most people would say, "Okay, I'm going to do this for five years, even though I know it's bad for me, and then we'll see." Like, how do you build up your gut? Um, you know, I I might might have also benefited a little bit from I had just turned forty, and for you know, it's as arbitrary as you know, thirty two, right? But in my mind, like forty was kind of this like midpoint, um, and I don't know. I I think getting sober and getting honest really really sort of helped me and, and and allowed me to get the courage and 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 I had something inside of me that that I describe as like only a mother could understand I knew that if I stayed sober and if I became the best father I could be that everything would work out um maybe I got lucky I don't know but well, well okay so let's talk about it since then has it worked out um, well, I'll tell you what this. What are you doing? I'll tell you this. So um, I'm living in the middle of Long Island, which is, you know, not my first choice. I'm paying 
rent. I'm in a you know the first floor level of a split level house. I'm paying thirteen hundred dollars a month in in, in rent. Um, I'm driving a you know a busted up uh, Honda Civic Hybrid. Um, I see my daughter five or six times uh, a week. I try to get a little bit of writing done every day, and and I've never been happier. And ten years ago, I'm living you know in a three thousand square foot apartment in Tribeca, going out every night, millions of dollars in the bank. So the fact that I'm I've never been this happy is tells me yes, I've it's worked out. Well, that's great. I mean, I think it's a very inspirational story. I think there's also a lot of uh, information you share on a lot of levels on, you know, Wall Street, on drug abuse, on how you kind of got out of it. Uh, plus, you know, I think this is a, very, a really important note that a lot of times people confuse objects and experiences and th- thinking that they're sort of, that the objects might be better, but it turns out experiences are probably better. So your 100%. experience of, of seeing your daughter five days a week is better than having the object of the 3,000 square foot apartment, which is nowhere in your life now at all. Right. Like that's just gone. And yeah. you can't even look back on it fondly because it has all these bad memories mixed up with it. So so what's next? Would you ever work on Wall Street? Do you want to be a writer? Um, so yeah, Wall Street's uh, most likely off the, off the list. Um, currently, I've been writing for CNBC and they, they've been phenomenal. I've been focusing more on um, sort of culture uh within within wall street i still have a great rolodex um i i was ghostwriter on a book uh i'm in negotiations to to write another book um i actually have another book which is fiction but it's it's nowhere near ready um i i i love film and television i'm, I'm currently working on a screenplay uh, i don't know if i'm going to be able to make that jump uh i i, I love being creative um so I don't know necessarily where where I'm exactly headed, and that's a good thing. Um, I feel like I'm in this period. So you do, it's a good thing because you don't feel anxious about hitting some goal, or yeah, you can yeah. just explore everything. Well, like let's say you're a farmer, right? And and you knew you're like you're. You said to me, Tony, you know, I've got I've got a great great batch of of seeds, right? And and you were you were just excited to plant these seeds, right? You weren't worrying about which ones were going to grow and bear fruit. And and I feel like I'm in this period of my life where I'm planting good seeds, but I'm not worried about which ones are going to are going to grow. That's a that's a great attitude. So so Tony, I just want to mention I read the book. I loved it. The writing style is great. The stories are great. Thank you. I got paranoid while reading the book on your behalf. <laughs> so so the book's called The Buy Side, A Wall Street Trader's Tale of Spectacular Excess. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank uh, you. It's been so much fun. So good luck. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah. All right. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.